We were a little concerned because Adam is a deeply a mathematical physicist, and often mathematics is being a very particular brand of quantitative abstraction doesn't lend itself to discussions about reality per se in the sense of our everyday interactions. But um, when it comes down to it, I think that's really couldn't be further from, from what he's working on. It seems like he's uh, deeply pursuing philosophical questions by studying information content and trying to understand, particularly in terms of the cosmos, what we should be looking for if we want to find beings in existence other than ourselves. What would their voices sound like? And this ties into other conversations that we're having with people like Lee Cronin, with people like Philip Goff, this is an investigation that goes deeper than just the scientific aspects of it. It's philosophical. It is about the way that we see the world and the way that we encounter the world and how it is that our stories of science are going to change as we enter into this new era of theories. And so we think that you're really going to enjoy the conversation. If you have not yet supported us on Patreon, you can find us at patreon.com slash demystifysci. You can support us for as little as $3 a month. And what that lets us do is that lets us make these podcasts and it lets us make more movies and it lets us keep growing the channel into something that can be not just on Zoom, but in-person events and tours and all kinds of larger conversations. Demystify Sci field trips. Yeah, it's been really great. The patrons that we do have, thank you so much. It's been really fun to hang out with you guys. We're doing this uh, weekly chat. Uh, Zoom chat where we get together with patrons and they've really been helping us figure out where to go with this project. Um, we have our own ideas, but it's so nice to also get feedback from people who care. So really, if you can give even the slightest bit of money and help us grow this a little bit larger, help us put a little bit more time into it, um, it it's really, really meaningful to us. And if you can't, that's okay. Just share the podcast with somebody today. Like, if you liked it, go and share it with your mom, share it with your brother, share it with your friend. And in that way, we'll be able to reach more people, which is ultimately how we get better guests. The scientific revolution starts now. It's been a couple of weeks since we last talked. How's everything going? Uh, things are good. Can't complain. Uh, you know, life goes on. I was just, I was backpacking in the Adirondacks. That was pretty cool. That's very cool. What, what kind of loop did you do? Uh, we did um, the uh, Mount Mar around Mount Marcy, that region. We did the um, uh, uh, Avalanche Lake, Avalanche Pass Trail, which is brutal. Brutal. Steep? Um, just, it's just like full of giant boulders and they have like, literally they have ladders, you know, that you have to climb up and climb down. And, um, and it was, uh, this was just last week. It was, it was cold. It was like, you know, the morning it snowed in the morning and, uh, we, you know, we camped out for two nights and it was, you know, probably 15 degrees in the, at night. So it was an adventure. That's really rough. I mean, I uh, I guide part part time because oh, I really like cool. going outside, but I can't. We're 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 so on the like the razor's edge of financial stuff that I can't justify having fun if I don't get paid for it. Right, and exactly. So I, I guide backpacking trips, and I there's uh, when we lived up in Portland, we did Mount St. Helens, and oh. I cannot tell you how much I hated Mount St. Helens with every fiber of my being. 
Why? <laughs> because it is literally so. Like, if you do it in the winter, I think it's okay because it's snowy. But if you do it in the summertime, they're literally car-sized boulders for two miles. Yeah, yeah. It's just yeah. you're literally like clambering on all fours, just crawling up this mountain like an ant in a backpack. Yeah, yeah. And then you have to do it the way down too, and there's just right, there's no right, which is even worse, no which is like, way worse. It's, yeah, it's, it's it was it was unbelievably bad. I have you uh, have you done the backpacking on the East Coast? I like you know, especially in this area. Not really. Like when we were up there, we went camping up in Rumney because mm. we were rock and Rumney's just. Have you have you been up there? No, no. Oh, it's, I mean, I think maybe it's more of a mecca for climbers than it is yeah. for hikers. Yeah. But it's yeah. just again like absolutely brutal because we got there as we're wont to do kind of late in the day. And so it's like noon. And of course, everything within miles of the parking lot is completely filled. And we just hiked vertically with all of our gear. It's probably like 30 pounds of gear, like Mm. ropes, quick draw, like literally just hunks of metal that you're carrying up this mountain. (laughs) And so that was, that was, that was very painful, but fun. Because that's the thing about the, you know, I've done both East and West, you know, because I I did my graduate work in uh, Seattle. So I did a lot in the Cascades and I was, I did my undergraduate in in the Rockies. And, you know, the thing about East Coast hiking is these trails. It's like somebody is just like, you know, somebody put the trail in and was like, fuck you, you know, like, <laughs> you know, if you can't get up this, then you don't deserve to hike. It's this very like sort of Calvinist version. And I did, you know, I did a chunk of the Appalachian Trail through Vermont um, a few years ago. I did like seven days up the, the long trail. And it was just every step. You could never look up, you know, because it's just nothing but boulders and mud and roots. And I was like, God, man. You know, so yeah. Yeah, I, I, totally I miss the West. I miss switchbacks. Ah, switchbacks. Yeah, you know. In, in, there was there was a mountain that was so like in, in the Pacific Northwest. You probably know the like the big uh, Missoula flood story around the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And there's and also the like the Cascadia subduction zone. But in the gorge, right. there's this mountain. I think it's called either Dog Mountain or green mountain i don't remember where basically half of it just fell off when the cascadia subduction event happened last year in like the 1700s and there's a trail that goes up it and when you're at the bottom of the trail it literally is like hard very hard and both are just straight vertical from the trailhead where i'm like i don't even want to know and it's called heartbreak ridge yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> I'm just like I don't, I don't know. I don't really want to do this. Yeah, right. I thought I want to do this, but I don't really want to do this anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Alrighty. So yeah, so, what you've been working on lately? Um, you it's know, all, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, I mean, is this? Do you want to start, or or should we? Yeah, I mean, we're we're pretty casual, so we're just trying okay. to figure out. All right. Okay. Yeah. What ha- what haven't you been? Uh, or what, what's, where's your mind been at in the science world lately? Um, well, you know, I work, so I have like, I have three or four main projects I'm working on now. Um, very different from what I've done. So most of my career was in computational astrophysics. So I ran a group where we built, we were a small software company, basically building, you know, advanced codes to model how stars form and, and whatnot. But, you know, over the last 10 years, I've really switched from that to astrobiology and then from astrobiology to also thinking about the physics of life. So I have a project, one of my main projects right now is we just got a big grant from the Templeton Foundation to study semantic information. 
So, um, you know, there's Shannon information, the, the information, the kind of information that the whole all of information technology is built on. Uh, but that's that's what they call syntactic information. It's really, you know, you got a string of symbols. You don't really care what they mean. The only question is, like, you know, can you predict what the next symbol is going to be? Hmm. So, you know, Shannon was really very clear when he wrote his paper. I think it was in 48 um, that, you know, this what he was talking about with information had nothing to do with meaning right of course you know the 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 commonplace understanding of information is it carries some meaning for yeah, someone what do you mean by those two words exactly semantic and information uh, actually information and meaning yeah right exactly but you know that you know for life mean you know information the only reason life cares about information is it carries meaning for it and you know most physical systems a black hole doesn't care about information. You know, the inform- you know, you can describe like an event horizon in terms of um, the in terms of information, but it doesn't care. It doesn't use it. it it's, there's nothing about the information that shapes the um, the black hole. Whereas life, you know, life is the physical system which uses information, and by using information, it cares about the meaning in the information. Mm-hmm. But there's no thing. There so is meaning no is like an interactive phenomena. Well, that's what we. That's that's. The idea is to try and figure that out. So there, there is, as of right now, there is no um, quantitative information theory, information theoretic understanding of what semantic information is. There's a lot philosophical papers and such, but what we got the grant to do was to um, to develop for the first time a, you know, a, a mathematically tractable, applicable theory of of semantic information and that could lead us into things like autonomy what 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 does it mean for a a system to be autonomous to have agency you know all these questions about that that every cell you know uh, um embodies and that really that is is just not very well understood at least certainly from a physics point of view and i was gonna say like the application of this is to then search for life that's what i was gonna say (laughs) No, no. The application is just to understand life at, at a more fundamental level. That's what I love about this, right? So I started doing, you know, my, you know, I, I kind of came to this from thinking about astrobiology, but this is all, this is pure sort of the information theoretic and thermodynamic, uh, you know, st- study of life. And, you know, the cool thing about right life is that um, in 19, also I've got to go back to 1947, I think it was, um, uh, Edwin Schroeder, Schrodinger, right, the famous physicist from Schrodinger's Cat, wrote a book called What is Life? Mm. And it was the first, you know, it was, it was the first modern attempt to try and develop a physics of life, understand life from a physics principle. Um, and he actually kind of predicted DNA. He said that life would be, you know, he predicted that a, an aperiodic crystal would be the basis for information carrying. Did um, he end up answering his own question? No, no. He pointed some in some interesting directions, but there is, you know, the hope was, what he was hoping was that there was going to be, that just like there are physical, there are like universal principles of electromagnetism or gravity, that there would be universal physical principles for life. And nobody's found them. We're not, you know, it's, we're not any closer. It's oh, really interesting. We, we just had a podcast. Do you know Lee Cronin? I believe he's. Oh yeah, podcast. Lee. Yeah, yeah. We, we just were hanging out with him yesterday and he's convinced that he has the definition for life. And so I'm kind of really excited to put it in front of a bunch of different biologists and, and physicists and see, because it's, it's obviously there's all of these listicle ideas about 
what life yeah. is, but yeah. nobody's really managed to do it. Do you remember his exact wording so I don't butcher it by any chance? I mean, it's the ability to create complex chemistry. Yeah, he right. has like a threshold level for which he ascribes complexity, yeah. which gets into the quantitative side of things. Like, But he, he, has, he has this vision that there's certain chemicals above a certain molecular weight that just don't happen naturally otherwise. Right. And so right. this is kind of his one criteria for life. Which in, I mean, Yeah, no, that, that's, and he's, his stuff has been influential for, the, for astrobiology because, you know, it could be that, that and I love that complexity measure, measure. I think that's an actually pretty interesting metric for thinking about biosignatures, that if, you know, if you, if you could detect molecules above that, that may be a very agnostic way of looking, you know, looking for life. So, so Lee, and then also Lee collaborates a lot with um Sarah Walker. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever had Sarah Walker on. We keep trying. <laughs> we have sent her many emails. And yeah, so at this point, we're just asking people who know her directly to put in a good word for us. <laughs> so yeah, but, well, it's funny because I... Sarah mentioned us. <laughs> we, uh, collaborate, we've collaborated on a couple projects, you know. But um, yeah, I, like I sent Sarah an email and she got back to me like it was a month and a half later. It's just, she's got so many. She's so active and so creative. That makes but me she's, better. You know, <laughs> yeah, they do. Right, right. So... Um, this whole idea of information, she and Paul Davies, you know, they, they, I was really influenced by their work on thinking about, you know, information, the use of information as being the thing that really mm. you should focus on if you're trying to understand life from a, a physics mm. perspective. Mm. So, yeah, there's been a few other people who have had to go at it too. Um, another person who's really interesting that we have, we're going to meet with in the next month or so is uh, Nick Lane. I don't know if you're familiar mm-hmm. with his work, but... Yeah, yeah, I'm familiar with his work. I don't know. He wrote a really uh, brilliant book about the matter, um, which went, actually went more in line with what you, you were studying at the time. Yeah, I mean, the minute that you take complex chemistry and then put it in context of information, it seems to me that chemistry is information from from like a bacterial biofilm perspective. I've I've always seen small communities of many organisms living together as communicating and having lots of information contained within them, but it's not information the way that we would normally see it. It's located in the gradients of nutrients, it's located in the gradients of chemicals, it's located in the redox state of chemicals. Yeah. And so is that something that you're working on encoding? Because it seems to be that that would lead you to finding life pretty quickly and easily. Uh, well, in this project, in the semantic information project, that the idea of chemo, uh, chemotaxis, you know, the, 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 the um, movement of a, of a cell up a, a gradient is, is like our prime example. Because, you know, the, the gradient, the chemical gradient by itself, sure, it's there, like if there was no life there, but and you could, you could write down the gradient in terms of its information content. But it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter to anybody, right? It would, you know, you can, the, you don't gain anything really by by expressing the gradient in terms of an information theoretic view. As soon as you have a cell, now suddenly that information content becomes meaningful, um, and so it's that trans. It's that you know that for the cell, it's going to you know it's going to be the one that will recognize there's a, a, you know, a gradient. And so that gradient carries information and that information will be meaningful. And so, you know, the project at this point, so, you know, we haven't gotten to astrobiology yet. This right now, this project that we're working on is really just about, you know, it brings up such really powerful questions with life as a physical system about like agency. What is agency? How, do, how, do, how does a system gain agency? You know, 
a, a field of rocks clearly is doesn't have agency. A you know a, a bunch of bacteria cells clearly have agency. And yet a hurricane, what about a hurricane? Does a hurricane have agency or not, right? It's a nonlinear driven system. It'll move around depending on how the gradients in the environment change. But, you know, we wouldn't really. So, you know, there's, there's all these emergent properties of life that seem to, for me at least, you know, focus on how it's, it's, it's use of uh, information. So this project, so you, you know, you're asking me about one, one of the things I'm working on. That's one of the things I'm working on. And um, we're just starting. We just got the grant. Uh, this summer, we're just starting on our first first part of it in the last three or four years, and I'm just super stoked about it. Information here, sound, the way that you're using the word information kind of almost sounds synonymous with, with reality or truth or something like that. Well, because the gradient, the gradient is information. So is, is when you say that the gradient is information, but it only acquires meaning when it's exposed to the bacteria, it seems like the 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 in, the gradient can only be it can only be is right there is a gradient and that is only information when someone comes to encounter it and to meet it and to see it and so for me it might not have meaning unless it's a gradient of something that i want right but it sounds almost like you're using information to 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 have this absolute sense of what is there uh, no, I'd actually, I'd actually kind of flip it around. And this is, you know, speaking of another project. So the book that I just completed with, uh, Marcelo Gleiser and philosopher Evan Thompson about the blind spot about experience that in some sense, I mean, I wonder, you know, the world only acquires valiance for us when, you know, through our experience, which is, which is a field of meaning and the world in and of itself, right. That kind of Kantian I'm not even sure what to say about that. I mean, so like the idea, I'm telling you a story about that. Oh, there's a gradient without anybody around it. There's a tree in the forest and, you know, there's nobody around to hear it. Um, you know, there's ways in which when I think about that question, I'm not sure there is a tree in the forest before anybody's seen it. There's something, right? You know, there's clearly the world exists without us. As I always like to say. But it's um, not like a tree you know, necessarily because nobody's thought of it that way. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, you know, as I like to say, it's not that there is, it's not that there isn't a world without us. It's just not this one. This is a human. The the signified one. Right, right. And so, so the information here is that it's the information almost is, it's that quality of the interaction between, you know, our, the experience, the experiencing entity of life. And, you know, that which is out there, which, you know, maybe you can't really describe at all without the interaction and the... the Oh, so it sounds like you're saying there isn't really a distinction between information and meaning. Like, they have to come together, essentially. Kind of, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, of course, when we're doing, you know, know, there's there's many ways to encounter this philosophically, but what you're trying to, right, with science, right, we're trying to take this, you know, big philosophical mess and say, okay, look, what part of this can I actually use, right? And then... In developing a theory of semantic information, we may actually end up having to like slice away some of the most some of the most important things about it. But hopefully we'll gain like, you know, we'll both gain something that will be practically useful in the laboratory and in theory and also carry some of that that importance, carry some of the scent of the big philosophical issues we're trying to address. Go ahead. Are are those tools allowing you to get a, a closer bead on determining what life is or what agency is 
That's the hope. You know, I mean, again, we're just getting started, right? That would be the hope. Ambitious. And the way we're doing this, so the strategy we have is what we're doing is, so this this was based, this idea came from a paper by uh, Artemy Kolchensky, uh, who I also think you guys should have on, young, um, you know, uh, uh, thermodynamicist, you know, uh, works in the origins of life and everything, just super smart young guy um, and very engaging. So he wrote a paper with David Wolpert. They were both at the Santa Fe Institute and they, and he called this paper a manifesto, right? Cause it was really just laying out the, the, the strategy for developing this theory. And it's, you know, it's got lots of information theory in it and it's got, you know, there's an idea about, you know, you, you, you have a system, you watch it evolve and then you go back and, and, and alter sort of the, the environment uh, and then run it again to see how it, you know, changes. So, but it wasn't really, it was like you said, it was a manifesto. So our, our, the strategy, right? You always have to figure out what is your strategy in a scientific project is we're taking, we're going to start with really simple models for things that sort of have properties like life. So for example, there, for example, there's the Kuramoto model for, um, uh, 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 synchronized oscillators, you know, so you have, you have a bunch of, um, of uh, 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 fireflies in a field and they're all blinking, you know, whenever blink, blink, whenever they want to blink. And all of a sudden they're all blinking together, right? Or applause. You have an audience, everybody's applauding, you know, randomly. And then all of a sudden it becomes synced, right? So there's a very simple set of equations for that nonlinear equations. Um, and that can display, they can show how this behavior occurs, how you get that phase transition from random to, and we're going to apply this, you know, that's a very simple model. Um, and we're going to apply this formalism that is in the manifesto to that to first say, okay, how does this work? You know, can we do anything with this formalism? And then we'll go on to, if it works, we'll go on to a more complicated system, like what's called the Gray-Scott model, which are the reaction diffusion equations, which is the stuff how you get pattern formation. Like, yeah, it's, it's for chemical reactions when you can get like chemical reactions that'll form the swirls and the spots, um, so really interesting. Oh, you know, it's not a living system, so but each it's, one of these systems, there's like some sort of feedback mechanism that's responsible for the contagion of these patterns from what I understand. Yep. yep. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. And, so you got an so environment. That's sort of like the pr primitive basis of uh, this interaction with, yep. with the informational yep. world. Yeah. I see. But yeah. it doesn't have to, so there's a point in there where it has to become alive though. Right. And, because you can have a nucleation of a crystal in a disordered system that has no life. You can have a phase transition in a system that has no life. I guess you got to start somewhere. Well, you do have to start somewhere, but it's like... And that's what we're doing, right? And then the hope is we're, we're going to keep climbing up. So then we'll do, uh, what is it, the chemoton model, which is a simple model for a cell. It's got like a, a plasmid and, you know, so we'll just keep... And then we'll do like, you know, uh, 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 a food web. You know, we'll just keep working our way up and seeing, learning about this formalism. And, you know, maybe the formalism sucks and it doesn't work. I mean, I got to come up with something else. But if it does work, we're going to learn, um, you know, uh, we're going to learn more about how to apply the formalism. And then the hope is, yeah, we can actually take it to data about brain systems, you know, um, or, you know, or, or really complex food webs or and, and apply this and begin to sort of see where, you know, what the content of, you know, wh where there is semantic information, how, you know, because first we have to characterize how much info semantic information there is. And maybe as we look from a cell 
to a, you know, to a, a multicellular, a single cellular system, to a multicellular system, to an animal, to an animal societies, we'll see like increasing levels of semantic information. Is the semantic information synonymous with the meaningful information? Is that what you mean by it? Yeah, semantic, yeah, yeah. So it's information that carries meaning. Yeah. And so what the formalism, what the manifesto did was, you know, lay out a way of, of, you know, count. It's it's easy to figure out what the total syntactic information is between a system and the environment. Now the question is, which part of that is meaningful, right? Mm. You know, you can imagine that, like, you know, you could have lots and lots of information about every, you know, every molecule in this room, but I, that's not really what's meaningful to me. And we, and here, meaning is always about. So you got to. What do I mean by meaning? It, information that allows me to thrive, to stay alive, right? So it's this autopoiesis mm. idea. Francisco Varela, you know, what's meaningful to a living system is that which allows it to persist. And I think that this is particularly applicable in a time where we have the ability to collect more and more data than we've ever had before. And now the question is, well, what of the data is, which one of the systems that are on fire is the most important system? And how, how can that be evaluated abstractly in order to be able to tell what we should be focusing on? And this sounds like it kind of ties into what you did in Blindspot. Yeah, because what we're interested with the blind spot, that whole idea of the blind spot was, or that critique. So we were doing, we were critiquing the sort of um, the view of science or the, this metaphysics that gets attached to science that is, you know, reductionism, you know, oh, all that matters are, you know, if you know the core, if you know what's going on with the quarks, you're done. Right. Um, uh, materialism, you know, all that matters is, you know, physical or physicalism. All that matters is physical stuff. And, you know, this is, you know, there higher, higher levels of organization don't really matter. Um, so, you know, this is whole constellation of, of, of philosophical uh, uh, positions that get bundled together. Uh, that, that And people say, oh, that's what science says. Science like says. Anti-science uh, advocates, basically. Is that what you're saying? What? These are used by by very anti scientific arguments for for why science is sort of worthless or not the correct way to. Or is to it just a pop side treatment of science where people are like you know carrying around signs that say trust the science, but they don't. I think I would say it's actually more pervasive. I think it's actually I I you know what we'd argue is that this this I this constellation of ideas is deeply rooted in scientific practice and has, you know, so, you know, if you poke a high energy physicist, that's what they're going to say. They're going to say, oh yeah, science shows it. I, you know, I can go get a book off my shelf that somebody, a, I don't want to name names, but that a popular science writer just wrote that takes exactly that position. You know, there's nothing more to life than just atoms. Once you know all the atoms, you're done. Um, uh, you know, or, or, you know, with, with consciousness studies or, or cognition, oh, you know, it's just neurons. That's all there is, is just neurons. Once you know everything about the neurons, you're done. And, um, you know, from the, the, what we were arguing, and so the idea is that this, this position is rife within science and it leads to all kinds of dead ends, or it leads to all kinds of crazy paradoxes, which then people have to do mental yoga to try and get out of. For example, okay. the mind-body split, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. It know? seemed like a, just uh, a giant confusion uh, between the, the overarching physical concepts of materials and ideas. I also think that it's a product of atheism, too, and the sort of the death of spirituality. I would agree with that second one. I would. Yeah, I exactly. Would. No, I, I agree with that. And that's why, that's why there's, you know, you get these ridiculous claims from sometimes scientists about like anybody who has any spiritual inclinations, you know, it's just an idiot. 
right? I mean, it's one thing to criticize fundamentalists, you know, sure, let's, there's no problem, you know, criticizing fundamentalist religion. Um, but to the idea that like anybody who sort of responds to the world in, with a sense of, you know, whatever word, I mean, it's hard to figure out which word. That's the thing, use. that word spirit, like deserves a scientific treatment, in my own opinion, like, I feel well, that's why I use sacred. That's why I, I, I the word I came after doing my, my research and my first book was sacred. Because right, it's about meaning, right? You need to make sure that what we're talking about is as having a sense of meaning. And in, in some case, amongst different organisms, right, we all have shared sense of things that are sacred, right? Like, you know, we can name any one of them, like children, for instance, you know, like yeah. there's, there's things yeah. that we would all agree have meaning inherently to all of us. And right. so there's this strange, uh, this, you know, these, these issues of meaning don't seem to be in the, in the wheelhouse of science. And, and maybe that's for the best because we, it's, uh, it's difficult to imagine experiments and to really pick these things apart. And, you know, the psychologists try, uh, God bless them, but it, it, seems to be, <laughs> it seems to be a very difficult endeavor. I, I wouldn't want to go into psychology. But, but there no. is this, there's this unwillingness to deal with the meta-phenomenon because uh, they, they get too close into the spiritual realm and, and you start talking about values and what people, what should be meaningful, you know, beyond just babies or something like what about other ideas and the minute that you start i mean let's be honest the minute that you start talking about the sacred and then you're somebody whose job is to cut holes in rat brains and put electrodes in them so you can watch them while they run around you 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 begin to be somebody who can't sleep at night because you're preoccupied yeah, with the idea imagine. of what is sacred and so yeah. i think that for the operation of science it is of utmost importance to keep the sacred at bay because you cannot continue to be this exalted, elevated eyeball onto the world if you for a moment even stop to begin to think about the meaning of your role in the cosmos while you're like slicing up brains. <laughs> right. Well, so that's the great thing about being a physicist, right? You know, electrons don't bleed, so we never have this problem. Um, but I really think, you know, so that, you know, what is the, when we talk about the blind spot, what is the blind spot of? The blind spot is experience, right? And so for, for us in the, the book, what we were trying to show is that, you know, there's this way, as you said, like the, the way science has developed over the last 400 years and with this, this, this metaphysics that got glued onto it, which is not science at all. It's just a metaphysics that got glued onto it was that um, it couldn't deal with experience. So it pushed experience away. Like experience was, you know, was, was, became an epiphenomena. Oh, it's subjectivity. It's an epiphenomena. It's not real. It's a, the user illusion. But what we're saying is that's like, that is the stupidest idea you could possibly come up with because without experience, there's no science. Like science, the, the problem is not, as I always say, is not how to embed consciousness in physics. It's how to embed physics in consciousness mm. because you start off with experience and everything you do from there is a story you're telling. Yeah, right? Your so atoms like, don't yeah. matter to, to you at all. You're not thinking about them or worrying about your atoms for the most part. You know, you're sitting there typing right. on, on a screen that you're not even really aware you're typing at half the time. And you're just, right. you're, you're, your meta experience is so much more real. This, this really ties into the work of, there's this guy. Wait, can I just hold on? Can I say something? Cause yeah. I just want to, it's not that your meta experience is so much more real. Your meta experience is the only thing that's real. Mm. Experience is the only sciences. I, you know, sciences conceptions, its rules, its laws. That's not what's real. What's real is experience. And then we have this amazing capacity to do science, which is, you know, which can both extend our experience by giving us space telescopes and everything, and it enriches experience. And it also shows us that abstractions have a role to play. But to 
to this is in the book we really emphasize this when um uh, whitehead really emphasized this about the the um fallacy of misplaced concreteness mm, abstractions so- are not real you know the wave function is not real yeah that's a- that's, you know, that's what that's I was trying to get at with like, there's this terrible confusion in science. And I think in the world in general between there's really like all words essentially stand for one of two things. They either stand for material actors, right? Or they stand for some abstract relationship between material actors or between right. other abstractions. So you get these nested concepts that build up and so much madness seems to result from this mistaking the map for the territory where your, your abstractions Boom. become the thing. And yeah. I'm actually really shocked to hear you say that as a physicist, especially a mathematical physicist to have the wherewithal to, to, realize that you know the wave function isn't primary because so many, right. it's like even the way the textbooks are written right. uh, at this point seems to suggest that that the map is is the territory and the so territory that's shocking to me. and the confusion yeah. of it is so pervasive i've had people con- like you, somebody the other day was like you know the paradox of the ship of theseus and mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, but that's just, th- there's no paradox there. They're talking about the idea versus the material right. substance. Right. And right. they're just like, I never thought of it that way. Right. And I'm like, yeah, that's because scientists don't think about things that way. And that's what, what we were talking about before about like the, 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 the sort of adverse, you know, the, the, re- the re- reaction to what we would call spirituality or sacred. It's a sort of sense of like, oh my God, we can't even get near that thing because then we'll lose our objectivity. But what it mistakes is object, you know, what we got, especially for physicists, we got this false idea that objectivity means like the God's eye view, you're, you know, that beautiful picture behind you, you know, you're just floating there in a disembodied, you know, staring out at the universe. And that, that's a fiction. That's a story. Nobody's ever had that experience. It's not real. We're, we're, what science really means by objectivity is you do the experiment. I do the experiment. We get the same result. Yay. You know, but we've confused and it's very much, I think it's very much because this form of science originated in the West and the West was a, you know, the, the tradition was a monotheistic um, religion that where God was the ultimate observer, you know, the, the final observer. So we always were looking for the God's eye view. And if you look at the classical philosophies of India and, and Asia, that just wasn't their concern. Like that was not, they weren't, you know, so it's like the, the fact that we attach this kind of metaphysics to science is because the, you know, the modern, the, you know, the, the uh, emergence of science in its current form happened in, you know, in a monotheistic culture. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, relativity is such a God's eye view sort of theory. It's really, really trying to integrate every, yeah, right, ever, the whole, ever, yeah. <laughs> imaginable. Well, the thing is, what I loved about Whitehead. So when we were writing the book, you know, I, I was never, I'd never read a whole lot of, you know, of, of, of uh, Whitehead, and you know, I knew about him. Uh, he was, you know, greatest mathematician of the twentieth century. Um, and then, so this, you know, the, the, the last couple of years when we were writing the book, I went back and I read a bunch of stuff and he's very difficult. So I was tending to reading books about Whitehead. Um, and, uh, but I really, he was just, because he was a mathematician, he was so clear about, you know, like he, he, what he's makes, he, he understands that abstractions are powerful, right? He's not like dissing abstractions, but he's just recognizing that, you know, the abstractions come from experience, right? The abstractions come you know, after you have experience and we can ask the job of philosophy is to interrogate abstractions. But as he says, you can't, you can't interrogate the concrete. The concrete is given, you know, the, the, the raw material of my, my sense awareness, which is not just like data. It's not just like, Oh, a bunch of photons, you know, it's, it's, it's an integrated whole. Um, that, yeah, that, that, 
you know, abstract abstractions are powerful, but but they they have to emerge from experience, and experience is what is real. Mm. Listen, now was Whitehead the one uh, who was finding similarities in different uh, flow systems, like in, uh, between you know heat transfer and? Uh, 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 no, no, he was really he was a pure mathematician. <laughs> um, about Helmholtz, who was I, the, I had the a collaborator in grad school who loved uh, Whitehead and was always telling me quotes. Was about it Helmholtz? Oh, I'm thinking of Stokes, maybe instead. I'm sorry. Stokes, yeah, yeah, who was a fluid dynamicist, yeah. the Stokes theorem and such. But yeah, no, Whitehead was really because you know most of my philosophical training was in continental philosophy of like Heidegger and Husserl, the phenomenologists, um, and so who I love, I still you know I, I, I love uh, Husserl um, and Merleau-Ponty, but but uh, discovering Whitehead because he was a mathematician was, and he still had these kind of views um, was was awesome. Hmm. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. I mean, I I think that the search for the ultimate abstraction is also what drives technological development. And it's hard to look at the the things that the West has done and has accomplished and not inevitably tie it to our desire to become gods that do not have to worry about the sacred. Right? Yes. Yeah. And yeah. so I think that that's a, that's a, it's an interesting thing because if you were to erase that from the the realm in which we operate, I wonder if it wouldn't fundamentally and forever change the society in which we live in towards towards an area of of less growth and less of this you know striving. Uh, I would agree with that uh, wholeheartedly because one of the reasons we start the book, The Blind Spot, with saying like, look, you know, clearly the world's in trouble with climate change, right? And climate change is is the consequence of developing a certain kind of techno techno scientific society. And, you know, listen, I love techno scientific society, but it's clear that it's, you know, the, the, the economic system, the political economy, which rose out, I know these things can't be separated from me that, you know, the political economy that rose out of the emerging, the emergence of science was tied to its worldview by, by, you know, went back and forth. Um, and it just couldn't, it, it can't see the environment, it can't see the environment. It can't see the earth as anything other than a set of resources. So again, sacredness or just, just the inherent value of a mountain as a mountain, it's blind. It's, you just can't see it unless you can put a, a timber, the, 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 a, a, a price on the timber stand. It doesn't know what to do with it. Mm, and, yeah, that's so funny. I was just talking about that with my students this morning. Well, because uh, what were you saying? Just, just it's so interesting. Everybody, you know, for some reason, it's supposed to be a, an astronomy lecture, but we ended up talking about how, you know, actually, we were talking about uh, uh people going and exploring other planets and some of the students got this horrified look and you know there's people in the audience who are just like uh we can't go exploring other planets because we can't take care of our own you know and and uh so this led one thing led to another and and we're trying to figure out um you know what what it is about this algorithmic operation like our government is um, our governance is almost uh, algorithmic in this sense as mm -hmm. well and that mm -hmm. the you know, the biggest bidders have a, have a big say and they don't even tend yeah. to be humans. And that's what's really interesting yeah, is right. that the corporations are these algorithmic entities that, that aren't even humans, yet we treat them as if they're people, yeah. you know. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I don't know, I just, it's obviously, I, I'm obviously of the opinion that that's, that's a huge problem, um, treating these things as humans. Because like you said, they don't care if they dirty the water and the workers might care, but they're swapping in and out. They're just like water in the sea coming and going, little yeah. water molecules coming and yeah. going. And yeah. Yeah, yeah, I just, I just well, got to change. Like that's like you know, for that you know, part of our our thesis is that if, if you know, if we don't have, if science as part of this whole system 
doesn't begin to understand the 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 fundamentality of the of of experience of the experiencer you know whether that's us or whether that's you know the ecosystems then yeah we're we're doomed right because like how do we gonna, build it into the equation right i guess that's kind of the essence of I think it's a, you know like I, it's already i mean i think in some sense you can see where it's beginning like complexity theory like complexity science so you know you look at reductionism versus emergence right and emergence is this idea that once you put a bunch of parts together you know, new things are going to happen. They're creative, you know. the um, You know, I think a science that really, uh, right, because we started with simple stuff. Well, where did, like, the triumph of science begin? It began with celestial mechanics, right? That was, you know, which is actually pretty easy. I mean, it's very hard. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. But it's a pretty easy system. There's no friction, right? And there's very, you know, the interactions between all the parts are long distance, right? And so the triumphs, the, the, the you know, the, the, the things that convinced people that science could understand everything were actually these incredibly simple, non-interacting, non-linear, you know, uh, equilibrium. They weren't quite equilibrium, but, you know, but, uh, but, but sure. these, those, yeah. thermodynamics, it was equilibrium, right? Sure. And well, even no part of the world versus, like, live in. versus outward acceleration or whatever you want to call it, uh, yeah. you know, angular momentum. There's quite an equilibrium balance there with all the orbits and everything. But, but, but they were wrong for 1500 years about celestial mechanics. Uh, right. So that's why it was a triumph, right? It was, it was definitely a triumph. But I'm just saying that, like, you know, what's happening now with, with complexity theory, which I think that's the future of science, the future of science, the future, that of, that's the future of economics as well. And, and of, I would hope and so. And, and of, yeah. of, yeah, interesting. I mean, I think yeah. that we go through periods. Uh, I was actually just thinking about this because I was thinking about the question of how, so imagine that we we wake up tomorrow and not only is all of our technology that works today absent, but we've lost the ability to work it. Mm. What are the things mm. that have to be in place for us to get back to something like the electric light? Right. And right. it seems like the process by which that happens is that you first have to have a sufficiently stable enough environment where people begin to write these treatises where they try to explain everything all at once, right? Like somebody puts down a tome and the tome is like, this is a theory of everything. And it's not like a short, th it's literally a theory of everything that it's, it's Aristotelian in its scope. Right. And then once you have that period, you go to the period of of exploration where like people pick little pieces of it and they're exploring. Yeah. Yeah. Then once they explore, they build tools. And once they have tools, then they can parameterize it and then they can specify it. And then after that, you have an era of technology, which is the one that we're on the cusp of. And after that, I think you have the era of complexity. Yeah. Because yeah. it's, it's, this, it's this taking of the various technologies and of sticking them on top of each other in a new ways, in things, in, in novel ways that you can't predict. And I think that you're right that that's where we're headed. It seems like the only possible step forward. Well, it's funny because, you know, the, the, in terms of the rise of technology, it's digital technologies. We wouldn't be able to study complexity if it wasn't for computers, right? It's the first time because, you know, these things were always so, you know, intense. The system, the complex, they just, we were like, I don't even know where to begin to look at it. Now, thanks to simulation and thanks to big data, we can actually wrap our minds around it. So, yeah, so we're entering, which, I mean, obviously, big data and AI have all their own ethical problems. Mm. But, yeah, I was going to say, but, I don't know I mean, if rescue us as human beings from making good and bad choices. I just hope that the human beings can get behind all of the choices more than just being driven by some little aspect of their will, you know, whether it's yeah. towards safety or security or 
Towards well, I do think, again, the, going to the political economy part, I mean, you know, climate change is going to force us in some interesting directions. You know, I can't really say. I mean, could force us is, into some Excuse me? It, it already seems to be forcing us in, into some Right, right. Direction. But, you know, as I like to say, what we've seen so far is the teaser trailer for mm. climate change, right? You know, these last few years of like, oh, my God, it's 104 degrees in London. It's never 100. You know, this is just, you know, we, we're just starting down this road. Mm. Um but you could imagine that it will force a different kind of political economy, that it'll force a different kind of view, you know, because, you know, you mean a more cooperative view or, or what do you a mean? circular, a regenerative, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's all these different proposals for different economics that actually take into account that you're living on a finite planet. Whoa. You know, um, yeah, it's uh, a really so, cool theory. I think it was donut economics. Yep. Yep, I forgot the name of the woman who's who's spearheading that, but right, that's one version of it. Yeah, she would be Kate an interesting Rawworth. person. Kate Raworth. Kate Raworth. Kate Boswell. Yeah, right, right. So we we have also emailed Kate Raworth, and she has not gotten back to us. So Kate Raworth, <laughs> if you are listening, Keep answer back. our emails, <laughs> please. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so that you know, there's there's some interesting ideas there. There's you know that uh, we're just gonna. I think we'll probably be forced to. A kind of economics that that sort of responds to the fact that there's an environment, which means an economics that understands ecology, ecological. There is already like ecological economics. It's a small subset, and everybody kind of laughs at it. But there's some really interesting ideas in it. And I know? think that this is really something that when I hear people start to talk about climate change and carbon dioxide, there's a part of me that starts to quietly freak out because oftentimes what it is is it's a story of indulgences. We'll buy carbon taxes. We'll offset the carbon that we put out. And I'm like, guys, carbon's a proxy. Carbon is yeah. is a proxy for. It's like the tip of the iceberg of yeah. all of the stuff that is happening. That yeah, is, like we don't have any fish in the ocean anymore. You know, yeah, right. where's like yeah. where's all the animals around here? You yeah. know, that like yeah. there's poison see, in the water tables. Like, did you see the article that in? Yeah. Uh, I think that it was Ohio and Michigan. Fish and game authorities were saying that people shouldn't be eating the deer or eat the fish because they had l very high levels of PFAS. And so the animals are literally toxic. Yeah, yeah. it opens up this whole other question of how you're going to parameterize it, too, because if the big, wealthy, non-human entities, which are like a agglomeration of people's financial interests... Corporations? Or? Yeah, yeah. Just mega transnational corporations. If they can just buy... You know, if they can promote a single variable and because they know they can deal with it, but they can't deal with like the, the thousand different poison toxins that they're releasing every day. Yeah. Um, you still have the opportunity for the equation to get like one sided in, in a sense. And I yeah, don't mean to say that yeah. I don't think like carbon, uh, the carbon dioxide data is quite convincing. I, I just think that there's so many other things that are just sneaking by. Well, the problem with the carbon dioxide is that it's, you know, right. The carbon dioxide is global. You're, you're adding energy into the system. The, the cascades from that are going to be incredible, right? I mean, the, you know, just, you know, it's possible that in 20 years, large parts of India are going to be uninhabitable, right? I mean, depending you know, on the, the, the wet bulb, if the wet bulb temperature gets above a certain point, nobody can sweat right um so that's why we focus on carbon but right it's the anthropocene what you're really talking the carbon you know climate change is just one this is the most dramatic aspect of the anthropocene of this new human driven era that we've you know and you know i mean we're either going to make it or we're not right i mean you know that, that's really we're either we're either going to be pushed into evolving you know or we're not 
And then, you know, we'll, our numbers will be dramatic, drastically decreased. I don't think we're ever going to go extinct, but um, it'll well, be a very... To some extent, our ancestors have been through it a little bit. I mean, if you think about what it must have been like to see the glaciers melt or, yeah. <laughs> to, uh, you know, yeah. the Sahara's been through a number of green phases in, in the past right. tens of right. thousands of years. And I'm, I know there was civilization down there um, that predated... The, well, some sort of rudimentary civilization that predated the Egyptians. That, and they think, of course, Egypt itself was much greener at some point. Yeah, well, God, there's pictures of, right, hippos where in, play, you know, places that are now complete desert. Yeah, so and the um, humans survive. The civilization didn't survive and in, in often. If, yeah, I think that climate change really is a greater threat to civilization than it is to individual humans. And the problem is, is that our civilization does... Okay, so it's got a lot of problems, but it's pretty good. It's pretty nice, too. <laughs> I like it. I'm all for it. I mean, I love my cell phone. So that's the thing. It's like, I'm not anti, you know, there's some people, you know, I forgot who's the writer. There's some writers who are really like anti-civilization. They're yeah. like, no, that, that, you know, I saw technology. people just on like, the street are anti-civilization, too. Yeah, yeah. Burn it's it really down. scary. Yeah. Because it's like, yeah. hey, what do you think? Which is funny because those, those people, I love, you know, the people who are all like, I'm rugged individualism. It's like, dude, that is not the way human beings have ever the only reason we're here is because we cooperate. So this idea that you're going to go out there with a toothbrush and a you know and a, a washcloth, and, and a sack and of buy, like, yeah, good luck with that, pal. You know, right. the meanest um, person on the block is going to come take your toothbrush ten seconds after the government right. disappears. Yeah. No, and that's really what it is. And so, like in my last book, in light of the stars, and that whole research that the, what I called the astrobiology of the Anthropocene. Well, you know, what I was arguing was that. Um, you know, the earth has been through many cycles, many has been driven through many stages, and life has been at the center of many of them. You know, the great oxidation event is the best example. And, uh, you know, this period of technological development, it, the earth would be is going to be perfectly happy to be like, hey, thanks a lot. This was interesting. And uh, you guys can go and I'll just use this warming that you, you know, you created to you know create a bunch of hybrid species and you know another half million years it'll be like the earth will be fine it's it's not about saving the earth it's about saving this particular kind of civilization that we are all tied yeah to. it'll be dead much. because it really doesn't like people always talk about you know history being a history of progress and i'm like i don't really a hundred percent no because the things that we learn are built on the generation that comes before us and it's right. important for it to be a direct and linear line for that culture to be propagated you can't have the enlightenment or civil rights or women's rights or mm -hmm. disabled rights or any of the things that we take for granted now as being important and valuable until you have an entire civilizational vessel that can mm -hmm. carry them and yeah, the minute that right. you lose that I, I think that you quite easily can reconstruct the Third Reich from scratch just as easily as you can reconstruct, uh, you know, some egalitarian paradise. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, what and in fact, in fact, I would bet the ratio of Third Reich to egalitarian paradise is like 50 to one. Yeah. If you're, if yeah. You're well, I think feudalism. <laughs> feudalism is you know my son and i always you know talk my son's big big fan of feudalism is the most stable form of human Interesting. because that's really what we've had Something for a long time however i think we you know history is so hard to sort of sort of think about because you know like like you said what are we getting um there's this book recently uh the dawn of everything i don't know if you guys have seen this it's really well worth reading because it really <laughs> that whole girl, narrative answer our emails. Oh, what i said one grow answer our emails <laughs> <laughs> but it's um 
I love that book. That book, that book, especially and for me thinking also about um, techno signatures and then the the, mm. the the evolution of civilizations, technological civilizations in general. That book was a big wake up call to me because I, I had sort of embodied the sapiens slash you know, um, guns, germs, steel kind of narrative. Like, oh, we started off as egalitarian, small bands of egalitarian hunter-gatherers. And then came, you know, came domestication of plants. And then came villages and cities and empires and science. And, you know, that book just says like, no, that is not the way it went. You know, there was much more variety. People were experimenting with all different kinds of forms. So I think that that book is a really... This is the one where they, they pointed out like these ancient cities that were basically laid out as luxury apartments and so forth and there didn't seem to be like this top-down leader structure or at least there's they no thought. yeah you no know, indication religion is very much from house to house and no like, slums no slums yeah that's quite powerful. yeah and there was just there was no indication of 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 hierarchies there was no indication of needing you know of needing like a police state or you know there's just all the usual things that people have found they're like oh when we look at it we can't find any of the things we expect mm. for a, a city of this size and so yet, um and yet they're gone so it didn't yeah didn't right right out. so that that's you know yeah right they were but it may be that you know that was actually a, that may have been actually a relatively recent thing in the last you know i mean we've had we've had 8,000, 9,000 years of human beings playing with civilization. It may have only been the last 2,000 that the, you know, these sort of imperial... We, of. <laughs> we, right. had, uh, we had Gavin Schmidt on the show a while back talking about uh, the possibility of super ancient civilization. Wait, you guys wrote that paper together. Is that true? Yeah, was that, yeah I was on that paper. Oh, oh, how embarrassing. Wow. <laughs> no, 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 it's yeah. okay. That paper, it's so funny how that... I might not have heard of. <laughs> that paper we wrote... somehow. <laughs> That paper we wrote, it was kind of almost a whim. Um, the, you know, in the Atlantic, when I did the Atlantic story, I told the story of how that paper started. And it's amazing. The I just, I was on a podcast. I was on Pharrell Williams' podcast nice. because they had read something about, you know, one of the guys, there's three of them, about the, the, what we call the Silorian hypothesis. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so that thing, boy, man, that paper had legs. And the funny thing is, neither of us really believes there was right. uh, Silorian. We just, you know, that was the but brilliance it could, of- But it's of, possible, right? That's what it was. Right. It was and you can't, I mean, it was the most beautiful example of how science works, right? Yeah. Because it wasn't, it wasn't about whether it happened or not. It, it was, you were asking the proper scientific question, which was, well, how would you know? And then you realize like, oh shit, I don't know if we could know. And then you're like, we can't know, you know? <laughs> and so that was just, it was just such a great exercise and what makes the best part of science, you know, yeah. just realizing something you thought was obvious was, is actually completely un, unknown. Yeah, it's so interesting. As, as I'm teaching um, the history, uh, uh, really, like, just looking back into the past and the history of, uh, of our theories of how this, this, this cosmos have functioned, uh, there's so many things that have just been explored and, have, and people have looked at and been like, well, maybe, but they can't, you know, they can't pin evidence to it in a specific enough way that they just yeah. sort of move on. And there's just so yeah. many amazing yeah. ideas, you know, that, that we, we take this conservative stance, which then again, map as territory gets reified into this, this is how it works idea, right. about how things are. But in reality, it's just that this is, the, this is the story of how it works that we can hang the most uh, pieces of evidence most, on. Right. The it's most data. Not necessarily how things, you know. Right. 
Right. So yeah, it's the whole looking under the uh, the looking for your keys under the lamppost. It's interesting um, when it comes to like the search for life about that idea because you know we've been arguing about about life in the universe for two thousand five hundred years, and it's always been an argument, right? And everybody has their you know their reasons why that they're totally convinced of, and these arguments get really heated. And there was absolutely nothing anybody could say. It was other than opinion, right? You know, and it's so interesting that now. We're just poised where that era is about to end, mm. you know, where we're going to have data in the next 10, 20, you know, James, James Webb could give us some data relevant to life, you know, maybe not technological, but it could even be technological life. But, you know, like we're really we recognize it. That's the real question, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what that's our that's our grant. That's the thing we're trying to figure out how. But just that in general to actually we're actually at the end of that just arguing era. Um, and it's okay. it's really fascinating to sort of think about what it, what it's like to come out of that fog you know where now suddenly it's like oh okay you know some of the this, things are going to drop away or we're you know we're, we're going to have data that we're going to have to evaluate and we have to think in new ways about this problem that all we've really been able to do beforehand was just you know give rationalizations for why we were right I think on some level, this transition is why science is given such a vaunted position in the world and in society. Because when you're living outside of this transition, it can seem kind of strange that science has this position of, of, of authority in the entire world. Because you're like, well, I mean, I understand that it's just a discipline of possibility. And I understand that there's, there's things that it can say, but it, there's a limit to what it can say. And so... I understand why people look at science with suspicion because it purports to know truth. But I think that the moment where you are going through that transition and the time of paradigm shift from maybe to probably and then to here it is, we have it in our hands. That's the moment where science really demonstrates why it has maintained this position for so long. And I wonder if that's not something that happens really once in a lifetime. Like once a generation type of thing. Well, it's weird. I mean, you know, so so there's been this debate about whether or not science has slowed down recently, right? That the rate of the, you know, even though we have far more scientists than we've ever had, are we making fundamental discoveries? I don't. But um, well, yeah. Let's get. Back. Hold on. I have things to say, but I'll get back to them. Um, but I do. You know, I. I what's weird is that, like, I mean, the last hundred years. Yikes! How fast. These transit, you know, uh, from not having quantum mechanics to having quantum mechanics, when I, you know, things that nobody understood were just being knocked over one after the other. And then, like you said, and then there's a device in your hand the next day that makes it clear that, like, this is not just, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of the pin. Here, I'm actually talking to somebody who's on another side of the, you know, the planet. That, and I agree with you completely. That's, that's why, and the fact that that can be turned into money and power, military power. That's why science is, is powerful. And that's why I never really, I never really agreed with the um, con- social constructivist argument about science that, oh, science is just a game that, you know, you know, powerful people play, you know, the powerful members, you know, there's, obviously I agree that like science has got lots of problems with racism and sexism. There but, are like, those what, people in science though, you must admit. I mean, there are certainly, certainly people who, who, who approach play for it. power. Or, or, yeah. Or, or, or just, you know, they're like, honestly, uh, it's funny that it should happen today because it would make more sense that it happened in the past that there was just a lot of idle barons sitting around with nothing to do 
who wanted to play with things. But I, I actually think that from what I can read of these primary sources, that those idle barons were actually genuinely motivated by a curiosity to Yeah, yeah, the, the citizens, right, right. Um, but but yeah, no, like, Kate, what I mean, is, what I, I mean, it's not necessarily power for the individual scientists. The reason why governments were funding science, right? The reason why the Royal Society, you know, in whatever, you know, in, in, in uh, 1690 or whatever it formed, was getting some money from the government which I think it was, uh, and I could be wrong. I'm sorry if I'm not wrong. But the reason why governments and the rich fund science has been because it has led to economic power and military power. So that's, it, once it becomes concretized in like something you can hit somebody over the head with or produce more nails to sell to, yeah, that's why, right, that's why science became, was seen as having power. And then it's predictive capabilities led to the was so it's a dual thing there's there's the religious the quasi-religious thing of like oh, science reveals truth about the world you know which is like through the telescope and then there's the money and the you know the money and power mm. and it's I, easier to get money it's easier to get funding for the, the, the latter well, yeah, yeah so like yeah if you can make a, if you can make a dongle then you'll always make money more than you can if you can explain well the government will be more willing to give you money to do your research yeah too. than if you're like trying to figure out the mating patterns of butterflies or something but my point is that I think that the rate of fundamental advance might have slowed down because there's not departments that are really focused on asking the fundamental paradigm shifting questions, I think. Where something that we've run into a lot is, for example, if you look at um, the, the expansion of the universe, right? Foundational perspective, everybody agrees. And then we were talking to John Moffat, who's at the Perimeter Institute, and he has this really, he has this theory about the, the very early universe, about the way that light behaved differently back then. And we were talking to him about redshift, and we were like, well, look, is it possible that there's a different explanation for redshift on the universe scale? And mm -hmm. he's like, no. And then I'm like, well, is anyone studying it? And he's like, no. And you're like, why? And he's like, we don't do that. Like, physics doesn't do that. And so I'm like, if you want to push it beyond the place where it is right now, you might have to go back and you might have to re-ask these fundamental questions. Because you said something at the very beginning where you're like, we're building models for, it was planetary formation or solar formation. Uh, oh, man, but when I, what I was doing... My, my previous life as yeah, a yeah, scientist yeah, yeah. of star formation, star, star formation. formation. Okay. So like the idea is that you build a model and then you use it. And if it's a good model, people use it for a really long time, but it could be one of those things where it casts the right shadow, but it's right. not the right shape. And mm. to, once you have the model that casts the right shadow, who in the right, what government in the right mind is going to be like, you know what? We should go back and check. <laughs> right. It works. It works. We can yeah. just keep adding things to it as long as it works and let's not worry about it. And I think that the fundamental discoveries require you to go all the way back and be like, well, what if there's a different model? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's absolutely true. And there's a great book I've got somewhere in here called from, you know, years ago called Discovery. And one of the things that, and it was just a kind of a generic history of discovering. And one of the things they found is that, you know, the major discoveries don't happen in the, in the major academic centers, which are too ossified. They're, they're not going to have the actual real advances. The crazy advances are not going to happen at Harvard or MIT or the Sorbonne because those places are ossified. You know, they're full of, you know, people who just, so, you know, you may get great science, but these kind of crazy discoveries happen in Delft, mm. for example, you know, or, you know, these kind of out of the way. That's what that was their, their conclusion. That's actually the why we've moved to a rural area on the border <laughs> of California and Oregon, because we were hoping to really like 
Come have like some fundamental. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, like, if there was a higher rate of discovery in the past, all of these, looking back into the history of physics, especially recently, it seems like everybody was doing a little bit of everything, you know, like you got uh, guys like Hook who are, who are studying everything from optics to gravity yeah, to yeah. inventing mechanics as we know it today, essentially. Yeah. I mean, and everybody's like that. It's just insane. Like these people are like a physician and a lawyer and a, a <laughs> governor. And then, oh yeah, like I'm an astronomer at night. And then it's, it's yeah. unbelievable. And I wonder if, if, if how the way that we have our, our labor force structured in our civilization today isn't really... Uh, amenable to that that sort of wide-ranging polymathism yeah but it's just also difficult because i mean so there's one way i agree that like these these you know the fact that like if you want to study physics you go to the physics department if you want to study life you go to the biology department and there's these walls and they don't talk they have different languages i think it's going to melt gonna study a tiny stable. little piece of life or a tiny little piece of physics right, right? you're not gonna it's there's not gonna no, be like there's no what department is life? that's like what is life yeah like, what is physics? I mean, maybe yeah. philosophy. Yeah, I guess we're getting in. Yeah, but they're, they're not um, broad, right? Yeah, yeah. No, the siloing. But I think actually, well, but just I, I, one problem, no matter what, there's a problem with that, that you know, every, there's so much, you can't be a doctor and a physicist and a musician. Well, maybe a musician, but you know, and uh, and a chemist anymore. It's because, you know, they're the, we've, de- we, the, 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 we generated so much knowledge that the knowledge you need to actually be a practitioner at the at the at the bleeding edge just means that you can't hold all those in your head. Yeah, like um, when, you, when yeah. all you needed was a wig and a jar of leeches in order to be both a lawyer and a doctor. Like, it was a lot easier then. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. The book of law was like this. You know. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm just ima- I just imagined like somebody attempting to be a natural philosopher in the modern day, but like by the standards of the yesteryear. <laughs> I got my wig. <laughs> Maybe that's all it is. Yeah, the accumulation of knowledge, the information is just incredible. I think that's. Dense. But I do think that, you know, big data and those methods is actually, I think you were actually, and already, I mean, I feel like I already see it with some of the work I'm doing with, like, you know, this, this, this project, the, the semantic, going back to the semantic information, it's, it's statistical mechanics. It is information theory. It is biology. It is, you know, uh, social systems. Like, it is, you know, complexity as a field is so polydisciplinary or even, you know, there's... You've had a remarkable career of being able to jump amongst different disciplines, too. I think that's extremely rare in this. Well, and I think, but I think it's going to, I think you're going to see more of that as time goes on. Because, again, in some sense, the technique, you know, compli- if you learn complexity theory, you can pick up and go talk to, you know, you can talk to brain scientists, you can talk to ecologists, you can talk to economists. So I, I do think that, like, we've, we've lived in a particular era of the, of the um, professionalization of sciences and the siloing, which was really kind of 1850 to now. Mm, and I can imagine there's ways it's going to melt you know, by the nature, because again, complexity is really the frontiers of science are complexity. You know, an interesting point about the cosmology, which is that in some sense, right, physics was always high, you know, particles, I'm going to fund the fundamental particles, or, you know, I'm going to push back the boundaries of, you know, the beginning of time. There's a way in which we've gone right now in terms of technology, those fields to me, they're just not that interesting anymore, Mm -hmm. because we can't do anything else. Like the 
you know, people are like, you know, doing these experiments in, in, in with, with particle physics and they're like hoping that somewhere down in the 48th decimal place, there's going to be a difference between the model and the data. And they're going to be like, oh my God, you know, beyond the standard model, you know, we're going to, and it's like, you know, that's really not that interesting from a fundamental, you're not, you're not, if you, if you're living at the 98th decimal place or whatever, you know, you're not really reaching the stuff that's really thrilling mm. um and so there's a way in which you know look at this the the, the the um uh the lhc right how much news has come out of the lhc mm. when was the last time you saw a press release coming from the large hadron collider i was is promised it, was that the they boson? were going to open a black hole at the center of the earth and swallow all <laughs> civilizations i'm genuinely disappointed that we haven't heard more about that well in some sense that would have been bigger news that, or you know compared like, like they found the higgs and then since then, that's it, right? I mean, they, you know, they within deep within the field, they're they're definitely doing interesting things and building, but there's, you know, there's been no there's been no fundamental discoveries mm. uh, from the Large Hadron Collider. Yeah, I could see know? I could see the future labs being really team like team oriented, you know, almost in the way that like they send those squads like tactical squads in the military or something where you have like. You know, you got your your bruiser, and you got your like uh, comms man, and like you got your medic. But like labs could be they like, all parachute in, you know. <laughs> but, but but they're like yeah, scientific they in, they land. Like, you got your biophysicist and your chemist and your computer science. You got guy the guy who manages the glassware. <laughs> the the <laughs> undergrad scrubbing the test tubes. No, but well, I guess you know, the point I'm making is because again, like I said, with the LHC, it's doing it's doing great high energy physics. But it's clear that that field, and it's the same thing for early universe cosmology as well, potentially. That's a little bit less because you do have things like the, you can look a little bit further downstream and things like the galaxy distributions. Um, but, you know, that those fields, like the technology, we've just run to the edge of what we can answer mm. technologically or, do you know, explore technologically. And unless there's some really radical breakthrough technologically, there's just no more questions we can answer mm. that are going to be interesting. Is that and so then, where you're at with cosmology, too? Because uh, I know I believe you did a, a fair amount of popular writing on cosmology uh, in the past. I did. I have. Yeah, I'm not that. You know, I, I, that's the thing. I've sort of moved on to other. I mean, yeah. many. When you get old as a physicist, you start thinking about life. Um, but yeah, I also feel like cosmo. I mean, there's cosmology and there's cosmology. Cosmology, like post, you know, the the. Um, I don't know exactly where I would put this cutoff, but you know, there's places where we have clearly fossils. We have things that records, right? Mm -hmm. Things like the large scale distribution of galaxies, the cosmic microwave background radiation, the, um, uh, the deuterium, you know, the, the, the abundance of light elements. Those are all great data points that you can hang a lot. And there's still lots of interesting questions to ask, but when you are pushing back to the beginning, you know, the real beginning, like with inflation and it's just not clear that there's a whole lot of data or there's going to be, you know we, were, we had a Crazy, guy on the show over the weekend who was doing some of the date the earliest dating of the earliest rocks and some of these meteors and everything and he's you know he's a wildly talented uh professor but he's just like there's so little to go on you know there's like two rocks on the whole planet that are from like four billion years ago or something you yeah know? i love the zircons the yep. zir with the, with the, i just love the name zircon yeah but, yeah a cool side, like yeah. get a zircon for our table, actually. <laughs> Just, well, they're cheap, <laughs> they're right? Tiny, you can right? get like a really well. You can get yeah. like cubic zirconia. Uh, Are yeah, there yeah, replacements like for fake diamonds? Yeah, so we could just get a huge fake diamond. And they're from the the Jack Hills. Like, isn't that like the main in Australia? That's also really gold cool. mining. Like, 
Yeah. You have to go, yeah. You have it's, to go it's down. It's funny because, you know, speaking of technological funding, it's like the only people who care about this stuff and fund it are the people who want the gold pretty much. Oh, is that really what it's... Yeah. That's what it comes down to in terms of funding, it seems like. Uh, yeah. At least in yeah. Australia. Yeah, at least right. we're our friends hanging out different. on the West Coast. Man. I mean, I think that as people... We had uh, Constantine Batigan on the show a while ago, who d- who's at Caltech, and he does uh, uh, theories of planetary formation. And something, and he also plays rock and roll. And he said something really interesting about rock and roll, which he was, he was like, you know, no one plays rock and roll anymore. It's not a cool thing to do. Certainly not lucrative. And certainly not lucrative. But I think that that's why it's going to be the place where the most interesting things start to happen. Mm, that's interesting. And the right. way that you're talking about cosmology and particle physics now seems to be kind of a mirror of that. Because if you have a generation that has grown up on, you know, filling out the standard model and there's these discoveries and they get to the Higgs boson and then all of a sudden it goes off a cliff, then finally you, you remove the calcification of it being the center of the scientific universe. And then mm. people can come in and they can start to ask answers where something that I'm always interested in is what does the math mean? Like, yeah, mm. you've collected a bunch of math and you have all these particles, but particles aren't particles. They're not, they're not objects by your right. own admission. Right. And right. so what are they? I don't what buy. Do they tell? What story do they tell? Yeah, what story do they tell? I don't buy this Tegmarkian version of the universe where everything is math down at the bottom. Yeah, no, no. Max, Max is interesting in that way. The, 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 he's like he's you know a, a platonic platon, Platonist. You know, it's just like yeah, interesting ideas. But yeah, no, I don't. I'm not going to buy that one either. Yeah. But even when you even when you listen to quantum physicists talk, the bottom is equations. Well, you know that's because quantum is so. Quantum is so weird, right? So I'm, I'm, there's another Templeton grant that I'm part of that Chris Fuchs is driving. You know, uh, have you do you, have you heard of cubism, quantum Bayesianism? It's an interpretation of, of quantum. Yeah. So you know, there's all these different interpretations of quantum mechanics, right? That's the weird thing about quantum mechanics. You got the math. Math works. I can build a computer, but nobody understands really. You are know, any of the material. Are there what? any material interpretations that you're aware of? Material of quantum mechanics? Yeah, like what the atoms are actually doing to cause, you know, pull well, on one another. Yeah, sure, sure. There's like, so for example, I mean, so what you have, you have what are called psi. So the, the wave function, the, the, you know, the symbol for the wave function is psi, right? Um, uh, and so you have psi uh, epistemic versions interpretations and scientology that's kind of the joke scientology yeah, are, are, are. um so the scion on the scientological interpretations of the quantum wave function try and preserve the reality say oh no the wave function is real it's about real things out there independent of you and me so that's like the many worlds interpretation which sean carroll wants, right which in that one is like every time you know, a quantum event happens and the wave function collapses the universe splits off into a you know a number, infinite number of pieces. So, the, you know, these the Schrodinger cat uh, parable, you know, you, you open the, 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 before the box is open, the cat is both dead and alive in the quantum wave function. And then you open the box and suddenly it's either dead or alive. What happened to the other part of the wave function? So for the many worlds interpretation, which is ontic, it's ontic because it says there is truly an ontological independent universe out there. Um, that would say that, oh, yeah, no, the universe just split. There's one version, in one universe where you're looking at and the cat's alive, and there's another universe where the, you're looking at the cat's dead. So that's a material kind of... And then there are what the, the epistemic 
where like, and I, I'm, I'm a psi, I'm very heavily into the psi epistemic side, which is that the wave function is not about the electron. It's not the electron's wave function. It's your wave function. It's about your interactions mm. with the world. And it's the information you have about the world. And so quantum Bayesianism is a, is a new version is a new interpret, relatively new interpretation. I love it, you know, um, and you know, it's gained, you know, it's definitely a lot, lot more people from it. And it's much more because what it does is it takes the subjectivity involved. It takes it seriously. It says like, you know, your dreams of a, it's, again, it's not saying that there's not a world out there. It's not, it's like, sometimes it gets accused of being solophistic, um, but it's not, there's a world out there for sure. But, but for cubism, the, the, the rules of probability that are encoded in quantum mechanics are really telling us about our interactions with the world. It's mm. a, you know, it's, it's us and the world. That's what you're learning about, not mm. the world. In it. Yeah, so. that seems closer to, to logic, uh, just making sense to me. I mean, obviously, if you tried to study these atoms here in my hands and tried to come up with a purely physical um, model for why they're behaving the way they are, you'd probably be lost for millennia trying to make sense of that. But if you understand that there's a being inhabiting them that has intentions and goals and you, you can get a lot further, although it's obviously a, a lot messier as well, but it seems inherently true as well, at the it same time. It seems inherently true, and it leads you to the idea that the instruments that you use are also indicative of what's actually happening. Because you have to then ask yourself, if we are measuring something, what is it that we are measuring, and what mm. is it that the output of the detector is actually telling us, rather yeah. than being like, the output of the detector is fact. Because yeah, you're not right. actually like you're you're not actually touching it and then getting some readout of whatever it is. Well, you know, the, the, I think you you hit on a, a central point, uh, which is measurement. The role because what quantum mechanics w w is weird is that it makes measurement central to the whole process. So, like beforehand, before 1900, people were fine with saying, "No, no, the atoms there are just the, the atoms out there, and they exist independent of me, and they have properties that are independent of whether or not I look at them." Right? The 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 you know the so the sodium atom being blue, for example, having the property of blue, it's blue whether or not I look at it. I don't need to make a measurement to think whether or not it's blue. Quantum mechanics took that away. Quantum the, the process of measurement became central to the whole formalism of quantum mechanics. And nobody understands why or what a measurement is. And so like in epistemic interpretations, it's like, well, the measurement matters because it's about your knowledge, right? And it's exactly what you're saying about the measurement, you know, about the measurement and the interaction and the, you, know, you never get the thing in itself. What you get is some indicator on a, on a, on a, on a device. Mm. Um, so this is this real battle. Like, so, you know, people like Sean Carroll and people like Chris Fuchs are going to, you know, they go head to head because it's such a fundamentally different uh, view of the world. And I, I think that the, ont the, the scientological people, and again, this is the blind spot. We have a whole chapter uh, that I did in the blind spot about this is that like, you know, quantum mechanics, really, what's, what was, what is quantum mechanics trying to tell us? It's trying to tell us that you got to give up on this old view of like, oh, I, you know, science gives us the God's eye view. Quantum mechanics just, I mean, I just, you know, don't understand why people are holding it, so it hard. Seems, it reinforces this this worldview of interconnectedness, which I think is a really ecologically healthy way of looking right. at the universe. You know, right. you right. we so often, children... Um, you know, one of the amazing things children do when they're developing is they learn to distinguish objects from one another, even though 
there's technically, you know, an unending surface of atoms in contact, right. more or less in contact, you know, across this room, right. I'm able to pick out things and assign meaning to them. And, and it's not like you can look outside and see, okay, there's a tree over there and I'm over here. And so I'm not the tree and so forth. But if you really start to take this like nodal interconnected concept of physics where things are, and this agrees with gra uh, gravity and light and so forth. If you really start to think about those as part fundamentally in a material sense, part of your reality, part of, of what you are as well, because you couldn't live without the trees. Let's be honest. They make, right. Right. they make the right. air that we breathe. And, right. and almost everything in our in our universe is like that. We couldn't do without it. Right. <clears throat> and I think that that interpretation really, really reinforces this <clears throat> really healthy view of, of how interdependent everything is, really, even down at the fundamental level. And that's the... That's the I'm sorry, go ahead, Anastasia. What I was going to say is that I, I always hope that people will start to think about that when you read about press releases, that they're going to get rid of mosquitoes or whatever yeah. other pest they've decided <laughs> is, like, <laughs> needs to mosquitoes. go. Yeah. But it's like yeah. it, never, it never happens because people understand the interconnectedness technically on some level, but then there's always this exceptionalism too, where it's like, right. well, it's um, not an ironclad rule. We can make exceptions. Right, right. It'll be okay. We'll see what happens, you know. But people love you know, so, physicists. So, this is so, so the fact that there is like a, a, a physics has the potential of moving into this mindset and embracing it, uh, especially from a, not just like phenomenologically, but like from a materials basis, I think mm -hmm. will be extremely mm -hmm. powerful. And Because people really, yeah. like people say like physics, like why does it matter? Who cares like about the stars or something? It's like, that's the story we tell about the world we live in. It really influences how we live. Like it's not just some, some no, superstitious no. nonsense. You know, these stories yeah. are so meaningful. And our it's physics a myth. is it's so a modern. Powerful. Every culture has its myths, which, you know, myths are, that was what my first book was about. Myths are, you know, the, they're the ground on which you establish meaning, going back to meaning, you know, who are you? What are you? Why are you, you know, where did, where did your, you know, your sex, do you, there's two sexes. Where did that come from? You know, these are all these myths are always telling the stories, but why is it that you, you know, you make this transition from, from adolescent to teenager, you know, what happens with marriage, you know, these myths just, they are the background that, that every culture uses to explain why things are happening the way they are. And science is our you know it's a different kind of story but it still is that it functions in the exact yeah, same especially way. some of the like when you really get to the like god knows what was happening 14 billion years ago that kind of realm where you're telling these stories of creation and and just like bent physics and it's just it's so mystical yeah. almost and but i i think that and fundamental physics too, you know, I have books like the God particle and like, it's, it's just, it's this level that really, really people look to, you know, the biologists really look up to the physicists in a sense when it comes down to like, what the heck is going on in the electron transport chain or something like they really, everybody right. kind of looks to the physicists like, what do you guys think? So, you know, I think a paradigm. Well, it would be great. Right. That's what, you know, the, the whole idea, the, the anti blind spot view is one of integration that like, you know, and going all the way from, you know, uh, you know, you, you wrap from this view of quantum mechanics where, you know, this is about your interactions with the world. It's not about the world itself, all the way up to cognition and studies of consciousness where, um, oh God, who was it? Uh, it was, I can never remember his name. He was a cyberneticist, uh, Gregory Bateson. Gregory Bateson, there's this famous story of Gregory Bateson and, um, uh, uh, I'm going to forget the other guy's name, uh, Jonas Salk. They were at, um, 
I think it was linzaforn. Do, do you know about the linzaforn? Um, linzaforn was a really, linzaforn was this, this sort of like 1970s, 1980s, hippie scientist countercultural group that was formed it was actually you know it, it was it was a physical place it was a, the Lindsay Foreign Foundation I think for a while it was in Ireland or Scotland and then it was also in New York um, and it was uh, at William Irwin Thompson who was a radical cultural historian I had founded it and so you know everybody who was anybody back in the day passed through Linzaforn, you know, so Sagan was there for a while. This is for Francisco Varela articulated a lot of his, uh, his ideas. Joan Halifax, you know, is now, you know, uh, the, the Buddhist um, uh, teacher was there. Um, so uh, uh, Evan Thompson, who's the guy, you know, the, who's I, I'm collaborating with, that was his dad. So he grew up with them. Mm. I, you know, I love the story. Evan's stories are amazing, right? It's like, you know, hanging out with Francisco Varela, hanging out with, you know, with uh, um, Gregory Bates. And I'm like, dude, I was like, you know, smoking bones on, on 14th Street. It's like, <laughs> I wish I had your childhood. But anyway, to get back to the story where... Um, Gregory Bateson, who was a cyberneticist who very much was this kind of like, whole, you know, thinking about holisms, he said to Jonas Salk, he said, where's your mind, you know? And Salk, being a good reductionist scientist, said, up here, you know, here. And Bateson said, no, out here, right? Mm -hmm. And I, that, I completely agree with that. You know, we are all communities. We are communities of cells. We are communities of language. Like I couldn't use language if I wasn't part of a community of language. Mm. You know, yes. the communities of the ecosystems. There's nothing separate, right? right? We right. Uh, we have this illusion of separateness, um, which goes back to the idea of spirit. It's inherently a spiritual or sacred idea, but I think the science is also taking us into this recognition that there's. It's all networks. It's mm. all. Networks. I think There's we're no really struggling as a civilization too on an individual level of how to build those networks because we've never been more connected than, right. than we are right now. But at the same time, that's a, such a tremendous bag of options. You know, you can go and hang out with whatever weirdo people are your ilk immediately right. just by logging, logging on to whatever yeah. server you yeah. hang out on. And yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's difficult cool. for people to find their way in that at the same time, just because yeah. the options are are so yeah. well opened up. I, I, I like, I love these romantic visions of real life, like, you know, chat rooms essentially where these scientists are and, and utopians are crossing paths and so forth. But today people have to eke them out um, on the internet and it's, it's not always quite obvious where to find those places. And yeah. And it's not clear. I mean, obviously, you know, that, that technology is also, is, is still radically destabilizing. So we'll see. We'll see how this works out. This <laughs> well, we're doing our part. We're trying to trying to build a little. Uh, you guys are. A I little appreciate parlor it. here. A little nicer. <laughs> Thank you for your service. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah. Well, Adam, it's been really fun to talk to you. I, I know you're a busy man, so I, I want to let you get back to the the hard thank labor you. of thank understanding the universe for us but yeah thank you so much maybe uh maybe one day we'll we'll actually get to talk to a couple of your colleagues we'll get them to that's right right well i'll try and pass. i remember i'll pass on the information because yeah because some of them are some of them occasionally will and occasionally will answer my email too. yeah but listen it was really great i really i really enjoyed this conversation it was a great deep dive into a lot of different kinds of subjects yeah man thank you for coming by okay right. take, take care. care see ya